0: Yeah, all right, I'm excited to be back. Um, I'm really excited to be back. Um, you guys are in for a treat this morning because I've come back with lots of energy. I've come back, I've got a um, I've, I've got a whiteboard t- today. Um, which someone said to me, How very 90s Baptist of you. I don't know what that means. Um, and also, I've done my own slides for today, so make of that what you will. Uh, towards the end of the talk, but it's uh, wonderful to be back. We've been in Cornwall, um, getting a tan and enjoying just living uh, in the southwest. The south uh, after living in Devon for a little bit, and after uh, you know get, going to my first Cornwall uh, holiday, I can definitely say southwest is best. Southwest is blessed. And so we're we're absolutely loving it. It's amazing. Um, I hope you've been enjoying our series of talks for gardens. We've been looking at how we cultivate lives of hope. And uh, if you've missed any talks, you can go online to our YouTube channel or uh, to our website as well to catch up on all the talks, particularly if you're here for the first time this morning, perhaps you're visiting or whatever. It's a a great series to catch up on. But we're concluding today on looking at the idea of hope. The world needs hope, and Christians have a unique relationship with hope. And we've been using John fifteen as our as our text, our proof text, this this very helpful teaching of Jesus, where he's encouraging us to, to live our lives closer to him. Jesus uses this analogy of the vine. He says, I'm the vine. And if you, want to, if you want to bear fruit in your life, if you want to, if you want to live life well, you then remain in me. He keeps saying, abide in me and you will live fruitful lives. I think Jesus often uses um, metaphors around sort of gardening and agriculture and all of that. Because I think it's, 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 it's easy for us to sort of make the connections to what's going on in our life with these metaphors that Jesus uses. I am absolutely no gardener at all. I have no idea. But let me tell you about gardening this morning. Um, In gardening, you have this process. Um, The first thing that happens is you do some planting. In, In gardening, you plant something if you want it to grow. And that's where we started. John 15, verse 1, Jesus says that his father is the gardener. He's the one who does the planting. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who knows what's best for the plant. He knows how to treat the plant, how to help the plant grow. He knows what it needs to take care of it. But so often, we think we we know best. Actually, we should be the gardener. We should be the planter. We're in charge. No one else should suggest otherwise. No one else should uh, have any input in the way that we live our lives. And I don't know about you, but... When I've operated like that, things have gone terribly wrong <laughs> quite often. And so we've suggested that actually the first step to cultivating lives of hope uh, begins with repentance. It begins with repentance in, saying, in, in turning back to God and saying, God, you are the gardener. You're the one who knows what's best for me. And you're the one who's going to lead me to life and life in all its fullness. Repentance is about letting God be God. But after planting, there's a process called pruning. There's a process called pruning where you tend to the plant, where you cut things back that doesn't help it grow, that where you where you move stuff out the way. You, mo- you get rid of the things that might stunt the growth or inhibit the growth of the plant. But pruning can be a rather painful thing at times. John 15, again, Jesus says that God goes about pruning our lives, not to punish us, but to help us be more fruitful. And so the second step that we looked at after repentance comes trust, where we begin to trust God, particularly In the times when it feels like we're being pruned, particularly where it feels like there might be some possible pain, potential pain in our lives and learning to cultivate trust in our life where we say, God, I know at least you know what you're doing and I'm going to trust you in this process. Thirdly, after all of that care and attention, there, there comes a season of producing where you bear fruit. You've looked after it. You've tended to it you've pruned it, you've helped it to grow, and then you bear fruit. Jesus says, when you abide in me, you will bear fruit in your lives. And the reward for trusting in God is then freedom, is then growing those fruit, freedom to experience the way, experience life the way God intended it to be. By trusting in Jesus and abiding in him, our lives bear fruit and lead us into freedom. So if you want to cultivate a life of hope, it's about living in that freedom. It's about living in that freedom. And after all of that, the last thing really, after you've planted, you've pruned, and you've seen the the fruit, the last thing really is to just enjoy it. Enjoy the fruit that has grown, to quite literally Uh, enjoy the fruit of the labor. For those of you wanting a bit of alliteration, and there's a season of partaking. Come on. Partaking, where you partake in the fruit. Uh, Partaking in the joy and the freedom offered to us by Jesus. And this season in particular has no expiry date. John 15, Jesus says that, when you abide in him the fruit that you bear will will last it says you will bear fruit and fruit that will last and so this last talk that we're going to look at and going to focus on is the garden of eternal life a garden found at the end of the garden at the end of the bible this picture this garden that where life your life my life this world this creation where it's heading this complete garden at the end of the Bible, often known as heaven. Heaven. A strange confession now for a vicar to make, but I've not always found the idea of heaven and eternity that exciting. And sometimes, actually, it's brought a bit of fear uh, and, and a few anxious thoughts when I think about it. Um, my, uh, I grew up in, in, a, in a Baptist church, maybe that says it all. No. Um, I, I grew up going to a Baptist church and I went to this youth group and one of our youth nights, they, they, uh, one of the youth leaders, I think maybe they just wanted a break or something, they went off into a different room and created this space where if you wanted just a bit of a bit of space, you could go out, go to this room and ask any question you wanted to the youth leader. And at the time, I was sort of um, thinking about eternity and thinking about all that sorts of th- sort of stuff. And I I, I went, I said, do you, do you really think that we're going to live forever in eternity? And, and he said, yeah, yeah, f- of course I do. I said, but that's a really long time. That's a really, really long time. I couldn't quite compute the idea of eternity and what it might look like. The joys of working for a church are that you get to start talking about Christmas in August, um, forget about whether October is too early to play Christmas in asda uh, Christmas songs in asda uh, when's it too early to start planning christmas things and actually i'm looking forward to being in this space if you if you're here for the first time we've sort of we've put this up ourselves we're sort of doing a bit of a makeshift thing here. are hoping by Christmas, at least, uh, our building projects will be further along. We'll have sort of a drum kit in here, hopefully a carpet and, and all these exciting things. And I'm, I'm particularly looking forward to our Christmas services, our carol services and all that we've got going on. And I'm looking forward to singing one of my favorite carols where it has these lyrics. Uh, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight." We all have hope and we all have fears. And often those are two perspectives that we, that we view life with. We either view the world full of fear or we view the world full of hope. And I was fearful of eternity because I wasn't sure it was, it was how it would turn. I'm not sure how eternity would look, what it would turn out like, how it would feel because eternity is a really long time. And then, of course, the, the other thing I really struggled with, with the idea of eternity, is, well, the other place, y- you know, H- hell, hell, the other place, hell. And I struggled having conversations with my friends about eternity, because in their mind, they disregarded Christianity as irrelevant to the world. Because of this view, I think we've got a slide where, where this view of you, you live life on earth, and then there are two options after, after life on earth, heaven and hell, and that's eternity. Now, I'm not, I don't want a queue of people <laughs> queuing up afterwards. I'm not disputing this at all. I think this is right. But I think that this particular mindset has led to an unhealthy uh, and not a helpful way of looking at it. Because I think it tells this. This narrative and this story, this overarching story, which we've been looking at. We've been looking at four gardens, Eden, two gardens specific to Jesus' life, and then this final garden in Revelation, this overarching story of what God's doing with creation. But if we go to the next slide, it's sort of the narrative here sort of suggests God created the world. You have creation. Then as we looked in week two, sin enters the world. Sorry, week one, sin enters the world. And we and it's sort of messed up. And it's 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 sort of not going as it was planned. And so this it needs a solution. But this this other view sort of says actually the solution then is escape. We've just got to get out of earth and spend eternity in heaven. But that leads to lots of questions. I mean, what about the world? What about The the meaning of of life and our part and our our time on this planet, all our work and our toil and our, our literal planting into the world, is it all meaningless? Is it all irrelevant? Is this world simply discarded as a failed project? And I think no wonder many people view Christianity as irrelevant to the world because they've got this misunderstanding of our message is about escaping it. But actually, let's read now about what God's actual plan for creation is. If you want to turn with me to Revelation 22, we're going to read from verse 1. If you haven't got a Bible, if you haven't got an app on your phone, it's going to come up on the screen anyway. Revelation 22, actually Revelation 21 and 22 paint this picture of, of eternity and what it looks like. And, and in my Bible, at least, the heading given here is Eden Restored. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. There will be no, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God's plan for creation, then, is to totally redeem And restore it. And so the Christian message of eternity is not about escaping the world, but the Christian message is that God is going to restore it forever, changing this narrative of creation, decreation, escape to creation, decreation, and then this, this moment of re creation where God restores all things and God makes all things new. How does that happen? well, then we need another shift in, in thinking. When, while I firmly believe hell is a real place and a place that is best avoided, Jesus also speaks of hell being a present reality for us. Just think of the world right now, the political uncertainty, war, poverty, injustice, You don't have to look far to sort of notice those things. Notice the evil, notice the suffering, notice the pain in the world. And you might describe that as hell on earth. But this final picture of of this garden in Revelation, it's this reuniting of heaven and earth. Tom Wright calls this the, the marriage of heaven and earth. And in doing so, this restoration project of heaven coming to earth being reunited pushes hell out of earth and pushes sin pushes evil as the as heaven reunites to the world as the kingdom of god takes up residence forever heaven and earth are then restored to perfect harmony and because Heaven and earth are now reunited. There is no room for evil. There's no room for sin. There's no room for death anymore. Everything has been restored. Everything has been redeemed. That's the picture. That's the end in sight. And this is the end that we live for, where our lives, this world is restored to God's original intent, all things made new. And this particular end is what will fuel hope in your life. When we set our minds on this future, when we have this future, this hope on our minds, when we have eternity on the mind, that's what will fuel hope in your life. I love how St. Paul encourages us to have eternity on the mind. We're going to quickly turn to 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 18. Let me read this for you. Paul says, Therefore... Christians are those who set their minds on eternity. The, the best book, actually, I, I've, I've read on this and is by um, a guy called Pete Hughes. He wrote this book called All Things New. And, and actually, just, just a side note, I think Pete Hughes is one of the most necessary and needed voices for the church in the UK in this moment. And so if you haven't uh, come across Pete Hughes, I, I, would, I would listen to all his talks. Genuinely, he talks a lot longer than I do. He's like 40, 45 minute talks and mine are more like 20 because he's got a lot of things to say and he's a very clever man, but he's f- phenomenal. In this book particularly, he says that when we set our minds on eternity, you might think, well, isn't that just another form of escapism where you're just, you're, you're not, looking around, uh, not looking around at your present situation because you're just, you're just thinking about heaven. It's another form of escapism. But he says, no, it's not escapism, but it's Preparation. And this preparation for what's to come brings perspective and meaning to the present. Let me read that again. It's coming up on the screen as well, just so you can follow. He says it's preparation. And this preparation for what's to come brings perspective and meaning to our present. Our view of eternity shapes how we view the world, shapes whether we view the world with fear or whether we view the world with hope. And so I think this is how most people, or, or, or this is the dominant view of, of the world. We tend to, to view the future through the lens of the present. It's like we've got these glasses on. You're a wizard, Harry. Um, it, it's like we've got these, this, these are the, this is the lens of the present. And when, when, we, when we think about the future, we're trying to view the future with these lenses on that, that remind us of the pain and the hurt that we have. This And we think the future's not going to be much different to what I can see around me now. I know I look ridiculous, but the point is driving home, I feel, at least. But our present reality brings this pessimistic view that things are just going to be the way they are. They're not going to change. And so we've just got to try our best. I, I can be like this when I'm ill. I can be very dramatic when I'm ill because I hate it. I don't like being limited. I don't like uh, being limited or held back by something as silly as a cold or a headache. It really, really annoys me. And some weeks ago now, I th- well, you all knew because I was being very dramatic about it. I, I, um, I had a very, very high temperature, very high, the worst temperature that anyone's ever seen. I had that temperature and I, I lost my voice and um, it impacted everything. It impacted my singing. It impacted my speaking. It impacted the way I parented, the way I was at work. It impacted how I sat down. It impacted how I slept. It was literally the worst thing that anyone could ever go through in their lives, and it's taken me now three weeks for my, for my voice to return, but even, even then, it's, it's not quite what it, what it once was. I've not fully recovered, and I'm I can't, I can't sing the notes that I usually used to sing. Uh, and I'm beginning to feel like maybe I will just never, never recover fully. Maybe this is my voice now. I've gone from a tenor to a whatever the next one is. The, no. um, I'm thinking maybe I can't reach those high notes again. Maybe Justin Bieber baby in the original key is totally out of my range now. Uh, maybe the wrong crowd. Um, maybe I can't sing. Maybe I can't sing take on me. Uh, take me. Uh, see, I can't do it. It's, it's no longer attainable. When the future is uncertain, it's our present reality that we look to to sort of gauge what's going to be. We might have these hopes for the future, but our present reality sort of gives us this idea that life's just always going to be the way that it is. But that's not the hope that we have. That's not the hope that Paul is teaching us. That's not what Jesus has in mind for us either. This fourth garden doesn't just inform us of our future, telling us what the future is, but it actually forms our present. Paul says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so where the world views the future through the lens of of the, the sorry, that's the wrong slide. You've jumped ahead a little bit, so sorry. Where, where the world views the future through the lens of the present, we're called to view the, the, the present through the lens of the future. This future hope that we have in Jesus, this most incredible future described in Revelation 21 and 22, where the where this, it's described like this new city that God creates. It doesn't even need walls anymore. Why would it need walls? You don't need to protect it. There's no evil. There's no harm. There's no suffering. It says every tear will be wiped away. All suffering will end. There'll be no more pain. There'll be eternal rejoicing. All things have been redeemed and made new. And you view your life through that lens with eternity on the mind. And then you'll begin to see life your life, the things around you in a completely transformed way. You, you'll see it with, well, 21 22 vision. Revelation, twi- come on, that's sort of good, isn't it? Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two vision. You, if you have that hope, that's how you see the world. You, you, of course, you still see the pain. You still experience those things, but you've got a renewed perspective for it. You've got, that, you've got that hope that says it's not always going to be like this. It's not always going to be this way. And if you have that hope then, if you have that hope, it's then your job to live in the present like it's already the reality, drawing the future forward and making a difference now. When you have that sort of hope, it's worth sharing. If you have hope, that good, it's worth living like it is real. If you have that hope, it's worth bringing into the world. It's worth sharing and not holding back. I read this. Uh, well, my, my wife sent me this article uh, just this morning, which I which I read. The um, there's a sculptor called um, Arnish Kapoor, and I don't know if you know this, but he sort of he made this paint, which is the blackest black ever but but what he did is he it was quite controversial because he he sort of kept the rights to himself so he he had exclusive rights to this blackest of black paint and um there was another there's another guy called Stuart Semple another artist who was like that's not fair this should be for everyone so he well firstly he went about making the pinkest pink ever he started with pink. Maybe that was easy. I don't know. Started with pink, and then he created his own version of uh, the blackest black, which was available to everyone except Arnish Kapoor. If you want to order his, if you want to order Stuart Semple's paint, and um, there's a bit that says, "Are you Arnish Kapoor? If yes, you cannot buy this paint." <laughs> Um, which I think is just very, very silly. If, if you have something worthwhile, if you have that sort of hope, it's worth sharing. It's worth, it's worth letting other people share in that. It's worth bringing that into your life and into the reality around you. If you have that hope, our job is to draw the future, that future hope into our lives, into our present and into our situations. The great author and theologian C.S. Lewis said that if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world are just the ones who thought the most of the next. He said this, the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. They had their minds set on eternity. It's about viewing the present through the lens of that glorious future, that we have in Jesus. And that's how to live with hope, to turn away from our own ways of doing things and trusting in God, trusting in the freedom that he offers us, trusting that he knows best and that he's offered us life and life in all its fullness. And we can become people who are driven, whose purpose is driven by hope. Living with hope, with that joy in mind, that joy of eternity. And it was that same joy that Jesus had, that same view of eternity that Jesus had that enabled him to endure the cross for you and for me. And it's that same joy set before us today that enables us to endure the challenges that life throws our way. Amen.